Hello, and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9 a.m. or for our more traditional service at 11 a.m. We also stream full services live on our Facebook page. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. So we have shifted from our post-Easter heresy worship series into what we do believe, the non-negotiable fundamentals of the United Methodist experience of Christianity. And we call these our doctrinal standards in the United Methodist Church. They are called the Articles of Religion. They came to us because two of the co-founders of that movement that would become Methodism, John and Charles Wesley, were the children of an Anglican priest, and they themselves were ordained Anglican priests. And so these articles of faith also come to us from the Church of England. And John and Charles believed that those fundamentals of faith should be carried through the American iteration of Methodism. And so we shared last week as we began this series that these are unchanging. In order to quote for you again, section three of our restrictive rules from the United Methodist Book of Discipline, article one of paragraph 17 says this, the general conference shall not revoke, alter, or change our articles of religion, or establish any new standards or rules of doctrine contrary to our present existing and established standards of doctrine. And so last week we heard about the Trinity, what our standard is for the Trinity, can't change that. And today we're going to talk about the Bible. Now you would think that the Bible might be fairly straightforward, however, as we pointed out in the heresy series when we talked about Martianism, that there are a number of people who tried to tweak the canon of the Bible over the years. They've tried to add to it, they've tried to delete it, they've tried to hold that certain portions of the Bible are more important than others. And today, here is what the doctrinal standards of our church say. There's actually a couple of them that talk about the scriptures. Article 5 is entitled, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. Now, I will warn you, this is in Old English. It came to us from England, and it is in Old English, and I wanted to read it exactly as it is printed here. The Holy Scriptures containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and the New Testament, of whose authority was never any doubt in the church. It will go on to list the 66 canonical books of the Old and New Testament. I will not read all of those to you at this time. It goes on to say, all the books of the New Testament, as they are commonly received, we do receive an account canonical. So all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the epistles, including Revelation, the New Testament, all of those are absolutely there. Part of the reason for this article is that the Protestant churches have a different canon of the Old Testament than the Catholic Church does. The Catholic Church has that portion of scripture called the Apocrypha. We would call those apocryphal books. They are not canonical to the scriptures. So they have those. We do not. Uh, We share this not only with the Anglican Church, but with the Presbyterian iterations, the Lutheran iterations, our Baptist uh, siblings in Christ. We have a different canon because 
the Judaic canon does not include those apocryphal books. And so we have the same canon that would have been authoritative under Jesus. That's what we have. And then Article 6 is of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and the New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Wherefore, they are not to be heard who feigned that the old fathers did look only for transitory promises. Although the law given from God by Moses as touching ceremonies and rites doth not bind Christians, nor ought the civil precepts thereof of necessity be received in any commonwealth. Yet notwithstanding, no Christian whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. So this addresses specifically Martianism. Do we need the Old Testament? Oh, yes, we do, according to the United Methodist Church. You cannot get rid of your Old Testament. The juicy stuff is there. You don't want to get rid of it. Absolutely you want that Old Testament. So those two alone tell you that we cannot add or subtract from our scriptures, which is a good thing, because I'll tell you, there have been iterations of Christianity that have tried to add to it. You might be familiar with the Book of Mormon. What we say is that everything necessary for salvation is contained in your Bible. And we cannot create a doctrine that is contrary to the Bible, nor can we create one that is from what we would call dogma, where it is not supported at all in Scripture. This is also kind of pushing back against the Roman Catholic understanding that papal bulls or papal edicts are doctrinal. So if a pope is speaking about church law, what they say is infallible. We don't have that. We can, we, first of all, there's no, we don't have a pope in, in Methodism, so nobody can stand up and speak authoritatively like that. But no one can create something and we go, well, you know, John Wesley said it and it sounded good, so therefore that's now the new law of the church. Can't do that. Instead, everything has to be supported by Scripture. It has to be in the Scripture or it has to be supported by the Scripture. And so that's where we stand on the Bible. So why is that important? Because you'd be amazed how many people don't read their Bible. Your Bible is crucial. Now, unlike the 9 o'clock congregation, this congregation, I know because I've had conversations with you, a lot of you grew up in Sunday school. A lot of you grew up reading your Bibles. And if you grew up in some of our Baptist siblings in faith denominations and churches, then you probably grew up with Bible drills, right, where you had to sort up and say your scripture, right? My mother grew up with that, and so my mother can cite an inordinate number of scriptures, right? And in the Methodist church, we're not always good about making you memorize things, but we do want you to know the stories that are in the scriptures. But the Bible has always kind of been slightly elusive to people. They're like, oh, it's, it's, it's really dense. Well, yeah, it's dense. It's a big Bible. First of all, there's 66 books in here. 66 books that record the creation of humankind, that record the relationship that God established from the very beginning, and the kind of powerful experiences that now countless generations have had with our God. It's going to take 66 books to even encapsulate some of that. You're not going to be able to get it with, you know, like one book or two. You're going to need more than that. And the Bible also is showing us the plurality of viewpoint that is so important. You know, we didn't just pick one book of the Torah. 
We didn't pick just Genesis. We included Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the holiest texts for our Judaic siblings of the Abrahamic faith. We didn't pick just one gospel account, and we had the opportunity to do that. We picked all four. So there is a diversity in how people experience God that is not only fundamentally a part of our Christian canon, but it is part of what God has given us in the scriptures. If you closely read the four gospel accounts, you will discover that people didn't experience or remember things the exact same way, even when it came to Jesus. So it's important to recognize that, that you get to hear a diversity of human experience when you are reading the scriptures. And it's an incredible book. It really is important, as I was showing our young ladies, Bibles are not just to be looked at. In fact, I've used the one that I received at William & Mary so much that it's falling apart. And if I'm not careful with it, the binding like rips off, which is slightly embarrassing. So you have to be careful with it. But as one of my colleagues once said to their confirmation class, we're giving you a Bible. And if it looks like this next year, you're not using it right. It should look red. It should look used. Now, growing up, my mother's not here, but my father is. He'll remember this. We had a formal living room, right? All Ethan Allen colonial reproduction furniture. We were never allowed in there. There was a formal living room. And on the table in front of the very nice Chippendale sofa was a Bible that was turned slightly at an angle, right, for drama. And it was there. And you weren't supposed to touch it. My mother just opened it up to record births, baptisms, and marriages, right? Like, that's what it was for. We had Bibles that we read. We just didn't read that one. That one you weren't supposed to touch. You just dusted occasionally, right? And you might have had experiences with Bibles like that, right? Where they look real pretty, but we don't touch them. No, you're supposed to read your Bible. Unequivocally, you are supposed to do that. And you need to do it. In fact, as I was teaching the confirmands before confirmation the other Sunday, one of the things we talked about was that God has given us the scriptures as a way of talking to us our entire lives. There's a lot happening here. I have probably read the Bible cover to cover at least a dozen times, intentionally, front to back, cover to cover a dozen times. I have read the entirety of the canon, more than that, because I'm constantly reading the Bible. And when I got back from annual conference, I was reminded of how much scriptural knowledge is to be um, upheld and how much it's important to people. I had some of my own clergy colleagues like, you really know your Bible. And I was like, I hope you do too. <laughs> but I read my Bible a lot. I read it in preparation for sermons. I read it in preparation for my Thursday night Bible study. I read it because I like it because I'm a big dork about the Bible. I read it because I want to know more. I read it because God has told us to read it. God has given it to us, and we have received it through the generations. This is your inheritance. Religion, spirituality, history, encounters with God have been recorded through the ages for you. And it's a gift, and you should use it. You don't want to just put it on the table. Sorry, mom. You want to read this Bible. You want to have it. And the thing is, you notice that there are people who do read their Bibles. You know, I have one time somebody said to me, you always have some like really sarcastic, snar snarky quip about the Bible. I was like, it's a spiritual gift. <laughs> it's very Old Testament prophetic, right? Absolutely. But I can do that because I read it a lot. 
because I read it and I know it and I treasure it. And then sometimes people don't realize there's good stuff in here, like good stuff, entertaining stuff in here. Not, it's not all just like, oh, there's entertaining things in here. So every time I have a youth Bible study, and by the way, three of our confirmands from the other Sunday stopped me at Lemonade on the Lawn in between services and like, are we going to get like a Bible study again? I was like, you want a Bible study? Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll do a Bible study. I was like, let's get Bart back from Appalachia Service Project and we'll work on getting you one. We'll absolutely do that. Because if people want to study the Bible, we want to encourage them to study the Bible. There was an article that was written by Dr. and Professor Stanley Hauerwas, who taught for a very long time at Duke Divinity School. And he wrote an article, and he's a little saucy. I'm going to preface this with he's a little saucy. Uh, he kind of likes to poke things a little bit and stir people up. He believed in that whole thing, our job is to comfort the discomforted and, and unquiet the comfortable. So one of the things he titled his, um, his article about was, we should take the Bible back out of the hands of Americans. Sounds pretty disturbing, doesn't it? Absolutely. But if you actually read the article, if you're not totally turned off, if you read the article, what you find is that he's arguing that the Bible was meant to be read in community. It was created in community. It was meant to be read together. That's why we read it together in community and worship. That's why we have Bible studies with other people, because something happens when we search the scriptures in community. And the three general rules of the United Methodist Church, do no harm by avoiding evil, do all the good that you can, and attend upon the ordinance of, ordinances of God, list under the ordinances searching the scriptures. So you have to look, and I'll tell you, sometimes you got to search. Sometimes you got to search. But you never, ever read the Bible and go, that was a waste of my time. That'll never happen. You'll never read the Bible and go, gee, Jesus, I would really like that time back because it's not been fruitful. Jesus told you to search the scriptures. What did he say to you? Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened. He was telling us that you've got to be engaged with this. And there are people who know it, not just Baptists. There are people who really know their Bible. And if you ever get into a conversation with an atheist who's looking to have a dialogue, you'll find out real quick, they know their Bible. But you need to know it too. You need to know your Bible. And sometimes there's these like juicy stories in the Bible. So one of the stories that we were talking about as we were talking about do no harm by avoiding evil, John Wesley is a great pastoral voice. He wants to tell you what kind of evil he thinks you should avoid. So there's a big list of things that he's like, these are problematic, stay away from it. And one of them was drunkenness, which is not the same as drinking, right? In the Bible, they drink alcohol. John Wesley drank alcohol. One time he was like, don't just drink wine. Sometimes you need brandy. You know, John Wesley had a lot of beliefs. So one of the things that happened was they were like, drunkenness. I said, yeah, there's drunkenness in the Bible. And they're like, there is? I said, yeah, there's a story about the first person who plants a vineyard and grows grapes, then ends up, you know, making juice. And in that uh, part of the world, in that day and age, we didn't have the ability to preserve it as juice. It quickly ferments and becomes wine. And the person was drinking their wine, and then they got drunk, according to the Bible, and they passed out naked. And they're all like, where is that, where is that in the Bible? <laughs> it's in Genesis. Noah, as soon as he gets out from the ark and settles down, he plants the first vineyard in the Bible. 
And then he made some grape juice out of those grapes, which quickly turned into wine. And apparently it wasn't half bad because he drank enough of it to get drunk. Now, why he went from drunk to naked and passed out, the Bible doesn't really fill us in. Use your imagination. But he passes out, and he has the good sense to pass out in his tent naked. I want to give Noah some credit right now. He doesn't, he doesn't just like pass out in the open naked. He's in his tent, and he's naked. The problem, though, is that his three sons discover that he's naked. And they're not supposed to uncover the nakedness of their father. So now they're, they're distressed because they're trying to figure out how to cover dad up. And the story gets really strange. They're like, okay, here's what we'll do. Two of us will stand shoulder to shoulder, and we'll put like a robe, which is kind of like a blanket, over us. And then we'll back up. And when we get to dad, we'll dump it on him. And then we don't have to look at dad naked. And then we'll leave. And then hopefully he'll wake up with no hangover. Wouldn't that be a miracle? So there were, I mean, you can see that even the drunkenness is affecting the family, right? Because they're like, dad's not supposed to be passed out naked. <laughs> like, that's not supposed to happen. Now, in our modern age, we know even further how destructive unrestrained drunkenness can be because people will drive drunk and they will kill people. And so the Bible is giving us some insight. It's helping us to learn from the mistakes of other people. If you have ever been responsible for a child, whether you were teaching that child, you were parenting that child, or that child was just around you and you were like, stop it, what you usually try to do is you try to help them learn from mistakes that people have made. Right? We're not like, here, go out and make all the same mistakes all over again. Especially as a parent, you try to teach your child like, um, you can try this. It doesn't turn out well, let me tell you, so that you can go make different mistakes and not repeat the ones of the past. Let's try to learn and move forward and be better. And so you're trying to do that. Oh yeah, people made a lot of mistakes. They're in here. And you can learn from that. When people try to do this, did it work? No, it didn't work, and here's why. But here's what God did. God forgave them and loved them and helped them to be redeemed. That's the story that's in here. That's the story that's in you. You are the living gospel. Your experience with Jesus Christ, your faith in the triune God, the power of the Holy Spirit that is in you and over you as a baptized Christian, that indwelling that happens at that sacrament, you are the gospel. And in your life, you will talk to people, you will encounter them, you might help them, hopefully you're not hurting them, and you will be the gospel that they hear. But you need to be grounded in the gospels. And so it's important for us to read our Bible. That's what Paul, or a disciple writing in Paul's name, depending on how you understand Ephesians, is trying to say to us, in him, Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Well, how are you going to hear the word of truth if you never search the scriptures? You can't just rely on a clergy person reading you scripture a little bit every Sunday unless you're planning on coming every single Sunday forever, which I will generally support. But again, you have to make sure that you are searching the scriptures. Because I gotta tell you, there's things in here that I'm not gonna be able to preach from the pulpit. I'll push boundaries, but I ain't preaching that. So we're gonna have to like read elsewhere. And these stories are important because some really hard lessons have been learned by God's people and we need them. And I'll tell you what, you need to be equipped because if you ever have a conversation with somebody, they'll say things like, you need to be perfect in order to be a Christian. You gotta have it all down. 
You can't be angry. You can't make mistakes. Once you're saved, you can't possibly be backsliding and making any further mistakes and sinning. You need to be perfect. Good luck with that. Nobody in the scriptures is perfect save Jesus Christ. Nobody. I mean, if you go and read the scriptures, I'll tell you right now, the Bible's real good at recording just how much like us they are. Abraham is a prolific liar. Let me introduce you to my sister, who's really my wife. Here's my sister. She's really my wife. He does it not just once, but twice. He does it so much that his son learns about it, and he presents his wife as his sister, but he gets caught making out with his sister. Thanks, Dad. Right? No, he's a liar. Does that mean that Abraham was irredeemable and he did nothing good for the world and for us? Absolutely not. But don't guilt him. Remember that he's human, and if God can do something incredible with Abraham, just imagine what God can do with you. Moses, a murderer. We often, like, skip over that in Sunday school. He was a murderer, and he fled. He fled to another country, and he had a warrant out for his arrest, and he's hiding. And God's like, you, I will send you back to that country. Now you realize why he's like, no, I don't want to go back there. <laughs> they don't extradite from here. No, he didn't want to go back because he was a murderer, and he did it. But look what God did with a murderer. Look at what God can do. You've got all kinds of flawed human beings in the scriptures that God is showing. I am greater than your mistakes. I am greater than your sin. And I can do incredible things if you are willing. I can do those things with you. Now, having just gotten back from annual conference, one of the things that always happens at annual conference is called the service of the ordering of ministry. And we recognize lay ministers who are now being certified as lay servants. We recognize those who are being licensed as local pastors. We commissioned those who are now entering into that final step in the ordination process as provisional elders and deacons. And then we fully ordained elders and deacons. And the cool thing about the ordination piece as you work your way through that is that you get to have this moment where it's just you on a kneeler in front of the bishop and the lay leader of the annual conference and you get to have two representatives of your order usually clergy that you know really well they come up with you and you get to have one other person that you pick so you get three people to come up and everybody's laying hands on you as the bishop pours out a double portion of the holy spirit on you it's powerful and it's up on the screens and we're all watching it and then they put up your ordination scripture you don't want to wait till ordination to be like i don't have a piece of text that guides my life. Now, some of them, I mean, you've heard them before. I mean, obviously, you've heard Jeremiah 6, 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? You've heard that. And you'll hear a lot from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. You'll hear that. You'll even hear John 3, 16. But every now and then, somebody comes up with one that is really unique. Huh. You see that one coming. That's interesting, because what they've done is they've given you kind of a biblical view of how they understand their call, their relationship with God, their ministry, what they are going to be working on as they are ordained to a lifetime of ministry, and you get to have that. And then you have my ordination scripture. Not like that. My ordination scripture, which apparently is very memorable because we talk about it every year at annual conference, 
Mine, I knelt down before the bishop. My kid was there with me. I had two of the elders that had shaped my ministry. And all of a sudden, mine came up. And I'm one of the last people to be ordained because my last name is Wastella. And all of a sudden, Genesis 21:12. The Lord said to Abraham, whatever Sarah tells you to do, do as she says. That's pretty much the reaction of the annual conference. They laughed, and that's why it was memorable. And so my friend Sarah, who's also ordained, said to me, I wish I had used that scripture. I said, my name's in the Bible. How could I not use it? You got to go with it. I mean, you're going to get all the other stuff. Somebody's going to do Jeremiah. Somebody's going to, you know, you're going to get plenty of that. But that one, and you know how I found it? A Bible study at my last church. We were in Genesis, and we're reading Genesis, and it's like, the Lord said to Abraham, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> Hello! <laughs> it's in the Bible! <laughs> and I remembered it, and I kept it, and I put it in my pocket, and then I put it up in front of the screen in front of thousands of people. Right? That's exactly what you do. That's what you do. And anytime anybody's ever getting a little sassy with me, I'm like, no, 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 the Bible says. You gotta do it. Fortunately, none of you believe that and do it, right? But it's there. It's there. You gotta have the text. You gotta know. My friends are like, how do you do that? I read the Bible a lot. I read it a lot. I read it when I'm sad. I read it when I'm bored. I read it when I'm happy. I read it when I need to. I read it when I don't because I have never wasted a minute reading the Bible. I've read a lot of stuff that was a waste of my time course, nothing from seminary. I've read a lot of stuff that was a waste of my time, and I'll tell you right now, never have I regretted that. I promise you, and you can take it up with Jesus, if you read this, you will never regret it. Ever. Ever. In fact, if you read this, and it doesn't work, and it's no good, and Jesus somehow on the day of resurrection, and you're waiting to find out if you're a sheep or a goat, if you get up there and Jesus is like, why did you waste so much time reading the Bible? Genesis 21, 12, Sarah said to do it. And I did. You can blame me. It's okay. Jesus and I are close. Right? So yeah, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Now, some of you have tremendous knowledge. You really do. I've talked to you. It's there. It, you don't even have to quote scripture. It's there. We need you in Bible study. Because I'll tell you, there's a whole, there's probably two generations now that have no idea what to do with this, right? It's intimidating, it's overwhelming. And I tell people, I'm like, you see these notches in my Bible? They're not cheater tabs. They're intelligent because I can find what I need anytime I need it. It's on my phone, it's on my tablet, it's on my laptop. You can get it on the internet. Have a Bible with you. Have a Bible with you so that you know what's happening. You know, write in it. You can write in your Bible, it's okay, you're not going to like burn in a purgatory if you write in your Bible, it's okay. This text is only as holy as you let it be to you. Are you going to let it be holy? Are you going to engage with it? Are you going to meditate on it? Are you going to let it become part of who you are? Because that's what we've been given it for. And that's what the Methodist Church is about. You need this. Notice... We require you to read this. We don't require you to read this. By the way, this is easier to read than this. This is more enjoyable to read than this. This is where it is at, not this. This is who we are. This is how to run a committee. This is how to be the embodiment of Jesus Christ in love for another human being. 
this is what it's about. And one already this one's starting to lose the gilding on it. You know, that's the shame about preaching Bibles. Just as you get the leather, like, really supple and perfect, then all the gilding wears off. Right? And then you got to do it again. And you gotta, you're like, you got to work from the beginning all over again. But I'll tell you what. Sometimes a used Bible is the greatest gift I have ever gotten. I got my grandmother's Bible when she died. I've gotten the Bibles from church members who were under the auspices of my homebound ministry at my last church for eight years. Because when they died, their adult children are like, we don't read the Bible. Would you like hers? Yeah, I would. I would love to know. What did she mark in her Bible? What was important to her? What was she thinking? What was that? You leaving a Bible that you have marked up for somebody is like giving them insight into your soul. It's amazing what you can do if you do that. I like this verse. I don't, I'm struggling with this verse. Hopefully Jesus will explain it when we get there. But you want to know what's happening in the Bible. Because I'll tell you what, it's going to take a little bit of time to get every single human being ever through the judgment process. It's going to take a little bit of time. And you should know if you're standing next to Moses. You're going to want to know who he is. So it could be like, it was the smack in the rock thing, wasn't it? You're like, how do you know about that? I know everything, Moses. I know it all. <laughs> I knew when your face was too shiny because you were hanging out with God too much. That's a thing in the Bible. Right? Yes. You want to know. Right? You don't want to be surprised. I'll tell you what. People that don't read the Bible think the worst things about God. They think the worst. And people, you can tell when people stay away from certain books too. People are like, Revelation. Ugh. First of all, they call it Revelations. It's Revelation. It's one. John only had one. Have you read Revelation? He can't deal with that more than once. One Revelation. And you got to get through a lot of weirdness. I'll own that. There's a lot of allegory and weirdness happening in there. But then, then, right before the close of the book, something beautiful happens. And the United Methodist Church and the Methodism that, that predated it in 68, United Methodism and its predecessors have utilized revelation consistently in services of death and resurrection at funerals, gravesides, and interments. We use a text from Revelation, and it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. And the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, was coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And the lamb was seated on the throne. And the kingdom comes. Now, a lot of people have a functional theology after death that they're going somewhere. The book of Revelation says that God loves you so much, God is coming to you. That's what Revelation says. And then there are pieces of it that people like, they kind of piecemeal. Like, oh, the streets are paved with gold. They're not paved with gold because of opulence and, and showing all kinds of richness and putting on airs with the neighbors. That's not why they're paved with gold. They're paved with gold because the scriptures say that God is the only light. The sun and the moon and the stars are no more, and all the light we ever need will be God's presence with us, and the streets will reflect the glory of God forever. And the gates... The three gates on each side of the city never, ever close. And if you've ever been somewhere and you, like, miss the closing of it, or, you know, or me, like Chick-fil-A, I only want it on a Sunday, right? You know what it's like to, to be shut out. But I'll tell you right now, God has declared to all the world that if you want forgiveness, if you want salvation, if you want to be with God, no one is keeping you out. 
There's three gates on every side of the city, and all of them are never closed. There is a gate, not just for you, but for those that you have loved and those that you have shepherded and mentored and parented and loved. There is a gate for us, and people need to know that. There is a way into the heart of God. There's a way, and you've got the map if you read it. Now, I admit, there's some hard stuff in here. There's some weird stuff in here. There's some uncomfortable stuff in here. That's why we read it together. Because as much as I have read this book, as often as I have read it, I will tell you right now that some of the best epiphanies and conversations and illuminating moments I have ever had happen in Bible study. They didn't happen in seminary. They didn't happen when I was reading on my own. They didn't even happen in worship. They happened when I was gathered with people just like you, and some of you actually, and we were searching the scriptures together. And sometimes it's something that the Spirit shows me for the first time. Something it's, it, sometimes it's something the Spirit is saying in you, that you say, and we're all like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Why have we never thought of that before? Because when people have been saying for generations, hundreds and hundreds of years, this is a living text, that's what they mean. The, the Spirit of God brings it alive and shows us new things. This is not an irrelevant, antiquated book. Because it's talking about the basics of who we are, and we don't change that much. We can get all dressed up in finery, and we can do all kinds of new things with culture, but I'll tell you what, at the core, we are still created in the image of God and fall short of God's glory. And that might leave you hopeless unless you've read the book. Unless you've read the book. So read the book. Read it together. Read it with others. Read it in your household. Read it with some of your friends. Read it with others who have decided, you know what, I don't get it, but I'm trying. Let's try. Read your Bible. Don't just put it on the coffee table. Don't just put it up on a bookshelf. Don't hide it under a bushel. It is the light of God, and it will illuminate your life for you. But more than that, because we don't serve a God who's only interested in you. We serve a God who is interested in letting you be part of the building of the kingdom. If you read your scripture, then God will use that experience to help others. And that's what it's about, being a Christian. Being a Christian is not about, like, me and Jesus are good and all the rest of you are in trouble. That is not Christianity. Christianity is like, because I'm so good with Jesus, because I'm so grateful for all that Jesus has done, I need to do for others. I need to tell others. I need to love others so that they can have just a glimpse of how I have been loved by God. That is what the Bible is telling us to do. And you're going to have people that are going to say, you don't understand it. You're wasting your time. You know, let somebody else read it for you. My siblings in Christ, I am not being facetious when I tell you that literally Christians have died that you would have this. Christians have died that you would have a Bible that you could own and possess in English. Don't let them die for nothing honor their sacrifice. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And plenty of shepherds of the flocks of Christianity have laid down their lives that you could be spiritually fed 
and the greenest pastures of God's word. Honor that and feast on the word. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.